Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This podcast is brought to you by the brand new FX PhD Smoke 2013 Fast Forward Training. Download all 10 smoke classes immediately for $99 to get started in checking out this brand new editing and compositing package. Details at fxphd.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX Podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to hardworking creative people producing amazing work. This is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. In this podcast, we'll be covering the highly anticipated film Prometheus, Ridley Scott's return to the world of aliens. Before we get to that, I just want to mention, as we release this podcast in June 2012, we're running a special over on FXPHD, our sister training site, um, where we offer two classes instead of our normal three classes. Since the beginning of FXPHD, we've always offered a three-class package, and we've had some feedback from people suggesting that they would like to take more terms of FXPHD, but they just can't keep up with the workload of doing three classes. So we're trying a little experiment with two classes, so check that out over at FXPHD.com and see what the special offer is and if it's still going. So as I said, we're going to cover Prometheus in this podcast. Mike Seymour is going to speak with Martin Hill, visual effects supervisor from Weta on the film. In particular, They're going to discuss the engineer, the aliens, and later in the podcast, they'll go in-depth about the complex new subsurface shading algorithms Weta has done, building on their work in Avatar. Let's jump now into the interview. Mike Seymour speaking with Martin Hill. Big things have small beginnings. So, Martin, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So, uh, we're really keen to see if we could just pick a few iconic pieces of uh, the work that you guys did for Prometheus and and discuss them in some detail because I hate it when we um, discuss just everything and and, uh, don't get to anything in in any depth. And I, in the cinema, was just really happy after the first scene because I was so pleased with the way it was looking, the quality of the visual effects, the original nature of what was going on on screen. It just set up the whole film for me, and I was like in such a positive bent, especially given from the trailers, I was walking in thinking we well, were going to start either in the present day or in some kind of Scottish cave, but I certainly didn't anticipate um, what we were going to start with. The, the sequence, um, just to outline what you had to do for us and, and the parameters of how you went about solving it. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, the, the engineer, which is the, uh, the creature of the opening sequence, um, he, he's effectively a... a idealized human in a lot of ways. He's sort of got this alabaster skin and perfect physique. Um, And he's come to what we discover is Earth um, to effectively seed Earth with with life. And he does this by by, um, effectively committing ritual suicide by drinking some some black organic goo which destroys him from within. And um, from that, uh, we we go right down into a molecular level and um, See, you know, his DNA being being torn torn apart by this uh, 
by this um, transforming substance, and he and he falls into um, this beautiful waterfall, and um, and we see that the DNA that's been been torn apart reform into what becomes becomes Earth DNA, if you like, and um, effectively creating life on Earth. So tell me, what did you have to work with? What was the plate photography that you got to have uh, to build on? Yeah, so so there was quite a lot of discussion um, up front when we first joined the project, and this was on um, this was about December 2010. One of the first things we were asked to do was match a, a maquette of the engineer, an early design of the engineer that uh, Ridley had uh, the model department uh, build, and actually see if we could. Um, effectively make a digital version that, that um, could, could work as well as a, as a practical element. Really likes to shoot practically, likes to get everything in camera um, that he possibly can. And I think that's, uh, you know, there's some great advantages to working like that. He, um, he means he can direct and light and see in camera exactly what he's going to get and not trusting some, some future process that's going to get slotted in. Um, so w- with that in mind, uh, we, we recreated uh, a digital version of the engineer uh, with our you know, material qualities and um, uh, skin qualities and, and replicated the lighting. But we also managed to um, you know, put in our f- facial facts um, system into it so we could actually articulate the face as well, actually bring him to life a bit, you know, add some blinks, a bit of facial expression and um, really demonstrate that uh, we, we, we can we can pull off a, a photoreal um, digital humanoid um, very close to camera in the style that Ridley's already lit in. And I think that uh, what, what then happens then from there um, in terms of uh, Ridley still wanted to shoot practically. He wanted to shoot on, on location at the, the Dentifoss waterfall in Iceland. And so um, we had a, uh, the, the actor in full prosthetic suit uh, um, in the in the final film, there is only him. There was there was actually a lot of other guys there. There shot, but um, the sequence got cut down, so it was just the the one the one engineer. And so your uh, plate photography had other actors that had to be digitally removed, or did you have a uh, yeah, plate? Some, some of them, but um, quite a lot of them. The the sequence as we saw the the other engineers had already left. Okay. So um, you know uh, there there was some you know some cleanup that we needed to do, but but nothing that was too troublesome. Um, and then we, we needed to create the, the effect of the, uh, the goo in the cup and his, uh, his actual disintegration. Now, the plan had been um, always that the digital takeover uh, would happen um, several shots into the disintegration, you know, when he really starts to sort of atrophy and tear apart. And um, what, what we found was because of his... Uh, because of the, the, the quality of his uh, skin and the lighting on the day and the fact that there wasn't actually much detail on him, um, combined with uh, the fact the whole film was shot in stereo, um, we actually found it incredibly difficult to match move him accurately enough to be able to uh, place on him the, the effects that, uh, that uh, were acquired for the early stages of the disintegration. So what happened was, uh, you know, we talked it through with Richard, uh, Richard Stammers, the Visual Effects Supervisor, um, in terms of, you know, could we bring forward the, the transfer into uh, a fully digital engineer? And, you know, their response was, well, can, can you match him? And uh, so we worked really hard to get, get a perfect 
not only um, in terms of material quality and lighting, but also performance um, to to the actor in the suit, which I think we we pulled off uh, pretty well. Um, this this had a number of advantages for us, not least that we didn't spend all our time perfectly match moving, you know, to so that everything on the, uh, that was happening on the surface of the skin uh, would exactly correlate with the, the motion and sit in the correct depth. But it also meant that um, we could we could do a lot more effects under the skin and um, have the skin displace out more. We had a little bit more freedom with where to take the the effect. Um, so so around uh, June of 2011, um, before the, the sequence was shot, um, you know, we were asked to do a couple of tests for what you know we thought the the centigration would look like, and. Um, you know, this was a great opportunity to come up with, you know, what would, you know, hopefully be quite a quite an iconic effect in terms of um, uh, how how this this creature, this majestic creature, is going to, you know, fall apart in front of our eyes. And it had to be sort of a combination of beautific and horrific in the sense that, you know, it had to look painful, but you know, the whole scene is so so majestic, yeah, and the actual yeah. act that the the um, the engineer is doing is, you know, in some way ritualistic, um, and taking in mind uh taking really to heart what Ridley really wanted to get as much in camera and shoot as much as he can practically uh what we did was um try to shoot as many not elements but um helper pieces of footage to help us with the effect um and a lot of this was to do with to really try and keep a a sense of natural and realistic motion um, to to the effect as it as it permeated through the engineer's body. Now, let me so, ask you um, one question about the plate photography, though, because you're starting on the waterfall, and there are some shots as it kind of cuts around with him, uh, as you say, drinking the um, the sort of ritualistic goop. But there is the plummet off the waterfall, and at some point you had to have been on a digital waterfall, I assume. But I couldn't see where you were moving from synthetic environment back or back and forth between real and synthetic environment. But where was that point? Ah, so um, the, the environment, I mean, the, the actual location was, was superbly chosen. Um, we, we could use an awful lot of what was there. Now, um, because we were placing, you know, our character in depth and, you know, falling into the water, yeah. we had to replace, you know, the water immediately around him and keep the, uh, you know, the style and the speed and, you know, the, um, the ferocity of the waterfall uh, uh, digitally. And for that, I mean, we, we really tried to keep the amount that we replaced to to a minimum, um, because you know the plates were just just so beautiful, and there's no point in replacing something that's just already working. Um, so our effects department, led uh, by Kevin Ramon, spent a long time um, recreating. You know, we've done we've done water before, we've done rivers, we've done you know oceans, um, recreating the actual white water currents of you know and the speed of of the waterfall uh, to be able to. Um, Create elements around our engineer that that fit, fitted perfectly in with the um, with the waterfall that was there, and allow us to to embed our digital character. So, uh, so you've got basically water sims that are interacting with particle sims or something that is going on for the destruction of him, and a synthetic version of him, uh, kind of dovetailed into what live action plates you had this is of course still at the coarse level of sort of human scale because obviously once you delve into the water it must becomes a full cg shot oh no that that stage it was uh, um i mean the, the underwater stuff was yeah. full cg environment as well 
um, at that stage when the the engineer was falling in, he was um, fully fully digital um, uh, far before that point. Um, I thought he, that he was. So and this is just testament to how well you've pulled it off. I thought he was live action until he leapt off. But you're saying that even when he's just standing before he leaps, he's digital. No, uh, the first shot where he he drinks the liquid. Yep. That's the last shot where he is. Oh, I'm sorry. There's one more shot where he's practical. Wow. The rest are all digital. I mean, that really is uh, a seamless integration of the two. And you're right. It's it's a close up shot. The the qualities of the skin, the sort of subsurface scattering, the waxiness of that white um, skin, mm. is a really important kind of look. Uh, and you've got a lot of experience in, especially subsurface scattering type stuff. But did yeah. you did you sort of take a long time to match? And did it in any way sort of get to a point where you thought we can actually kind of do something even more interesting than than was able to be done with the prosthetics or was it always just about matching to the prosthetics? Well, that, that, that's a really interesting question because we were not limited by the, the, the prosthetics, but in terms of the way that the skin worked, we, we needed to match it perfectly. But also with um, our muscle rigs and our creature rigs and the way the skin solved. Um, usually when we'd create you know, a digital humanoid, we'd be we'd have a full muscle rig, you know, controlling his, you know, abdominal muscles and sternomastoids, mm-hmm. all, all the, the, the um, you know, the, the, the things you normally put into a, to a human digi-double. And um, because we needed to match the practical, which was an actor in very heavy prosthetic, um, we actually needed to tone down and augment how we normally do muscles um, to, to match the prosthetic, but also... Um, and add some more life that the prosthetic possibly couldn't get. Um, so we were we were trying very hard to be able to um, create a believable character, a fully believable character, um, but not tip over the balance where you know you could really see uh, muscles firing where you couldn't previously when he was um, a, um, a silicon um, enhanced actor. Right, and uh, the. The sort of later sequences of the DNA and stuff, um, did that pose the fully CG underwater stuff any unique challenges for you? And there was sort of like obviously caustics and some interesting stuff going on with the water, but I presume that was a more traditional full G- CG solution once you got to the kind of, uh, well, let's face it, you, you, you sort of vastly changed scale. Yes, yes. So there's there's two DNA sequences, and they're, they're all fully digital. Um, so the shot where we're, we're zooming in on the, the arm, which takes us into the, the first DNA shot, and this is where the DNA um, gets gets infected and torn apart by the um, by the the, uh, the ritual goo that uh, he's he's drunk. Um, th- th- this is a fully fully digital environment and a fully digital arm that we're we're going into, and it and it had to be to get the the macro photography that we needed. Um, Ridley's um, brief on this was uh, effectively for the first DNA shot, it's like war in there. He wanted it to be very aggressive, this infection coursing through the the DNA. Um, but apart from that, we had a lot of scope um, to collaborate with uh, Ridley and Richard to design what the shot would actually look like. We had some, some previs and had some snippets of other films and um, um, some ideas and moods with it, and obviously for the pacing. Um, but we were able to um, start designing what the three types of DNA looked like, which was the, the engineer's DNA, the infected DNA, and um, the earth DNA that comes later. And so, um, you know, 
with uh, you know again bearing in mind you know what we wanted to do with uh, what we were trying to do was make everything look as naturalistic as possible we we, we based each of the uh, dna designs on something physical something real something we could actually you know shoot and hold so um the original uh engineer's dna is sort of based around um fish bones spines um which sort of to give quite a quite a sort of sinister look, but we made it very very translucent, very sort of beautific, to give us somewhere to go to really infect it and distort it. And for that, we shot a lot of um, melted polystyrene um, effects that we used to drive the um, the distortion of the DNA and the uh, the textures that were, were were applied to it. Tell me, how did you find working with the epic footage? Because this was uh, shot stereoscopically, so you had um, yep. footage. Was there anything shot with the HDRX mode, or was it just shot in normal epic mode? You had uh, a dynamic range advantage yep. if you no, wanted it, but that would have presented some issues, I imagine. All the um, yeah, I, I believe it would give some temporal uh, offsets, um, although I'm not 100 percent clear on that. Um, no, all, all the footage that we got and we had to work with was shot shot in normal mode, and um, the whole film was shot parallel, which I believe really helped the stereo. Certainly helped working with it. It's much clearer to insert extra um, CG elements in depth uh, in parallel. I feel. Um, the other but, characteristic uh, we, we, of it is that, of course, you could have had it if you wanted to in post production at a higher resolution because the cameras natively shoot you know four or five k what what sort of resolution were you getting the plates at by the time it hit Weta's pipeline yeah we would get the plates at uh, an expanded um 2k so it was uh uh 2154 i believe and um but you know if we're ever doing a push-in on a shot or we ever need to add some extra camera shake or anything that gave, need, need us, we needed some more resolution um, production were very good about um, getting us the 5K plates if we if we needed them. Because you did mention before having some issues over the tracking. I was wondering whether that was coming from the stereo or just coming from the nature of the material that you were trying to track for the body tracking. Uh, yeah, that it was entirely down to the material because uh, the engineer, you know, he's got this really thick layer of this very translucent silicon on him, and it effectively makes him quite featureless. Um, in in a lot of ways, we we didn't have tracking markers uh, because really wanted to be able to use as much of the footage as possible. So we um, we had a, a very a very hard time trying to track and match move to the character. And part part of that was also that you know it it's made of silicon, it deforms differently to say a CG model. And part of that was um, just it was very hard to get uh, continuous uh, tracking data from from the the engineer himself. But the footage itself was um, was very clear. It's very good. So let me jump forward in the story. We're now in um, in a completely different uh, place and a different time. And uh, Elizabeth Shaw finds herself having to undergo some emergency surgery for the most ghastly reasons. And I have to say, I, I screamed like a girl in this. I just thought it was just a horrendously... Uh, the, la- the latter part of this, as she's trying to get out of the med bed, was classic alien, just scared the bajillicans out of me, um, evil stuff. Walk me through that, because unlike the um, stuff we've just discussed, I assume you could never go for an, a digital Elizabeth, or or could you? I presume not. <laughs> 
Uh, combinations. I mean, this this entire sequence when the previs came in for this, um, you know, our, our jaws hit the floor. We we couldn't quite believe that they were going to want to go for something this graphic. And you know, when we got on a call afterwards, it was like, you know, really, do you want you know, do you want it to be opened up that much? And um, you know, they were taking the very sort of bold move of saying, yeah, absolutely. I think it was a fantastic move. I mean, the, the whole sequence is very analogous to the. Uh, chestbuster moment in uh, in alien I think. well yes i would say that except for in a certain extent uh you could in in the in the chest busting sequence you okay he's dead he's out of there and this sequence was given a dramatic beat of intensity uh i guess a level higher by the fact that we kind of hoped that she could get out of this predicament and she wasn't just dead um it wasn't just all over red rover she was basically fighting with that sucker until the last part of the scene and blood's being sprayed everywhere and um, it must have presented some pretty uh, difficult problems. I mean, I can imagine somebody uh, relatively easily animating some surgical robotic equipment to do some stuff, but Mm. everything else after that just seemed to be a tracking and compositing nightmare. Um, It was was certainly a challenge. there, there were there were a couple of interesting things with the the, the sequence when we got the the, the footage in um, on set um, while the uh, they were running rehearsals for the, the takes it was revealed that uh, Numi had actually uh, trained as a, a belly dancer for a previous film <laughs> so um, she she was on on the the bed and doing all these sort of fantastic contortions that uh, you know already had quite a quite a sort of a, a, you know a, a surreal feel to them a quite a quite a um, an inter- interesting set of motions, and um, so of course we 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 covered her her belly of tracking markers as much as we could, um, and uh, um, had to had to match move you know the you know the organic belly as much as possible, and and for stereo as well um, we needed to to make sure that it was you know absolutely spot on, um, there was no kind of two D warping at the end to try and fit it fit it back on, as it were. Um, in terms of the um, creating the MedPod tools, um, really wanted quite a sort of sinister motion to them, quite a quite a clinical and mechanical, but also quite um, quite almost spidery motion to them. So we got, we kind of uh, looked at a lot of industrial machinery, um, car manufacturing uh, robots and things, and t- took a lot of their motions. And you know, some of the motions are a little bit unnecessary in some ways, but uh, we. We, we use them and um, try to make them a bit more sort of spidery and sinister, you know, as the, as the med pod uh, hoop where the tools are attached is sort of moving up and down her and scanning her, um, which I, you know, I hope sort of built up the tension to the point where, you know, the incision starts. Um, the, the, the laser itself and the steam sort of coming off the belly and the, the wound that then, then gets opened up. At this sort of point, um, we'd, al- we'd already been doing distortions to the body, you know, things like, um, you know, as if there's a baby inside with an elbow or a foot poking, you know, the, her belly to push it around and enhance the distortions that Numi had already put on there. But when the, the incision happens, this is where everything had to, to get very precise. As you're opening her up, there needs to be, you know, a, a fully, fully digital wound that was uh, created inside, um, along with all the, the, the steam and... Uh, uh, blood that comes with it. Um, At that point, was the, the shot where you can't see her face, you're looking down from her point of view, effectively, was that just a fully digital frame or were you still relying on parts of uh, live action? 
we were using as much live action as possible. A lot of it was live action reprojected onto geometry. Right. Um, so yes, we were using live action, but uh, we were we were augmenting it quite severely um, to to enhance the uh, the effect. And as part of this uh, hysterectomy, the alien comes out, of course, and I'm guessing that as it's as it's uh, fully articulated and stuff, and part attached, of course, by the sort of what by basically didn't look like a strong enough grip from the from the robotic equipment. Um, that, that was all digital. Deliberate to make to make it kind of well, it worked, my friend. That just point. really, yeah, <laughs> it really worked. It's like, god damn it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> In probably the scariest uh, reference to. Um, to a claw coming down and a, a kid's carnival um, toy, uh, it reaches down, lifts out this alien and, and pulls it up. And it's now not only splattering blood everywhere, but you've got um, the actress having to react very much to the threat of it as she crawls out from underneath it. So what was the plate photography? Okay, so uh, Neil Scanlon's um, practical um, team put together a, an animatronic version of the, the baby trilobite. And uh, the, the articulation on, on this thing was fantastic. It could really move in, um, in you know, credible ways. Um, and so for some of the shots, we were able to use that. Some we had to completely digitally replace the trilobite. But there was always something in the scene for Numi to, to perform with. And then in some shots, we had to replace and take it out because it, uh, it did have... To add to add more um, more organic motion um, in places, or to get a, a, a different performance that we couldn't actually get on on set. Um, obviously, you know, while it's in the placenta sac and being pulled out, that's fully digital. There was a a, a model made of uh, placenta uh, with the baby trilobite inside, but uh, you know the internals weren't articulated, and we wanted it to to sort of twitch and convulse as it was being pulled out, um, which meant we had to go into a lot of um, scattering work with the rendering to make sure that the volumetrics all worked with all the uh, the sort of blood and goo that's in, inside the placental sac. Excellent. <laughs> and and uh, there seemed to be, um, I, I mean, I couldn't really tell because I didn't have my eyes open, but there seemed to be a lot of stuff <laughs> coming off what was must have been CG and going on to the actress. So there's a lot of, uh, to get that kind of contact splatter, uh, and yep. stuff was there was a lot of that stuff just practical that you coerced or was there actually just having a need to have her fairly uncovered in blood and then you were adding digital blood i was just trying to work out i mean we're kind of used to contact lighting this was kind of contact blood and gore yes um combination actually i mean a lot of the sort of the the sort of uh sinewy gore that was sort of connected to the digital stuff obviously had to be in synthetic some of the uh, you know we had some shots of uh, of uh, you know just basically blood being thrown at Numi while she's on on the uh, the chair and um, you know we could use use parts of that and augment it to um to uh, to what was needed for the shots um but let's say we, we we try to use as much of the plate as possible and only replace what we what we needed to to make to make the shots work in normal hospital dramas or whatever, the dead giveaways when you have a shot of what is meant to be the wound or the area, it always looks dead. It always looks like it's either rubber or plastic. Um, if it's CG, it often looks uh, fake. But in your case, the rather rapid closing up of the wound with the staple gun, um, was that all digital? Because it really looked good. It neither looked plastic nor rubbery. 
Yeah, um, that 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 is all, all digital. I mean, we started with the, the stapler. There, there was um, the, the production to and fro between it being a sort of a, a glue gun or or a stapler, um, but we we always had in mind what what the stapler would would be doing. And um, you know, as the production progressed, you know, we realised we wanted to really really get a sense of these staples being really pushed into to Numi's belly, and you know, having the force to do that, uh, being quite quite visceral and quite violent. Um, yeah. so we, we sort of changed the design of the stapler a bit and incorporated a bit of a, a pneumatic drill theme to it. So it actually, the, you know, the whole body of the stapler is like jumping up and down and then actually distorting and pressing into our body. And then the staple sort of, you know, uh, needs to, um, it, it takes a little while for the staple to settle a few frames after the staple has been sort of punctured into her. And at the same time, we needed to, um, distort all the skin and animate the wound uh, closure uh, by the spreading tools that are, are going in and um, squeezing the skin back together in preparation for the stapler coming over. We did a few iterations of, you know, combined stapler joining together tools. There was one that looked like a bit of an inverted snowplow, which was quite successful, but in the end we went for two, two tools, one on each side. So the similarity between this scene and the first scene we've spoken about is the need to do very accurate matching of skin because if you've got a, a her stomach section, as I said, and it doesn't look fake, it does look like her, her stomach that earlier was just being distorted, or you've got the, um, the engineer's head and body and skin being replicated, I'm wondering, is there anything beyond taking kind of a light probe HDR on set that you do to kind of help you with that process of matching uh, live action skin or prosthetics and digital? Yeah, I, I should clarify that Numi's skin was generally reprojections back on. It was, oh, okay. you know, we were adding things digitally to it, you know, extra sort of droplets of water, extra distortion, extra blood. But I, I'm sure I saw into the wound at certain points. So. Oh, oh, inside the wound, yes. Yeah. That was completely digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, um, we, we create, um, you know, we, we've got a, a, you know, an advancement to all our global illumination setups that we're using on Avatar, you know, all the, all the technology is progressing, you know, at a great rate, and we're able to sort of move from one project to the other and take take the advancements that happen. So if, every project that we have gets a little bit more advanced. I think one of the big advancements that we had for the skin um, was our um, translucency quantized fusion model. Um, which uh, which Eugene Dion was the the primary author of, uh, and he uh, he put together this um, this improvement to the dipole subsurface, where you actually get uh, it it keeps a lot more detail on the surface than the dipole does. You still get the spread and diffusion of light through through transmissive skin, um, but it keeps sort of the real sharp details, the pore level details. Um, and a lot more clarity than, than what we were able to do previously. Can we discuss that? Because that sounds fascinating to me. I mean, the, the principle of subsurface scattering, obviously, as light goes in below the skin surface, it scatters. It scatters differently depending on the wavelength of light. And that's a one-to-multiple kind of matrix problem for where it comes out. But but normally, the the characteristic of that is that you're not seeing much surface detail because the characteristic of it is that light diffuses. Obviously, if there was a speck highlight at that point, it wouldn't exhibit subsurface scattering because you would have the subsurface hidden by the specular highlight at skin level. So I don't... I, 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 I Obviously, you've achieved it, but I can't see how you can both simultaneously maintain skin uh, surface properties and the subsurface scattering that makes it look so realistic. Could you explain? Um, I, pr- I probably won't be able to do the... Uh 
the technicality is justice, um, but I, I can I can give you an overview of um, 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 the actual the actual overall effect. I mean, the the specular is is sort of an immediate surface property, and that yeah. that, that gives us all the the detail of the skin, and that that's obviously an additive to the uh, the subsurface um, effect that's underneath. Yeah, the subsurface itself. Um, um, traditionally, what we would do back at say Kong uh, Kong era. Um, is we would have a subsurface model and then we'd always kind of add some amount of what would be a general Lambertian diffuse back in to maintain that kind of detail. And it's something that, um, you know, it's something we've always tried to fake up to, to now. And the new model sort of allows us not, not to have to do that and in a far superior way. It, um, it retains the detail right at the surface without us having to deconvolve our texture maps to um, uh, to to compensate, you know, if you, if you take a, take a images for your textures for what the skin is doing, I mean, the mere fact that you're photographing skin means it already has the subsurface properties baked, baked into that. And if you're reusing a subsurface algorithm on top of that, in effect, you're doubling up on the subsurface. And the DQD uh, model sort of helps, helps uh, you know, keep the detail of the moles and the pores and all the, the fine details, which contribute, you know, a large fraction of the the amount of subsurface but it also keeps the long range subsurface so you know the stuff that's sort of over a centimeter away um you know that's that's still really soft but it has all these uh, different ranges uh in between and it's a continuum so it's uh you know you you have a certain certain amount of very tight uh detail and then that that uh you know le less detail uh less amount of uh, decreasing amounts of detail as you get further away from the incident point of the light. Fascinating. And this was uh, the first time that that had been articulated, or rather enacted or implemented, I should say. Uh, you said it came from Avatar, but it wasn't actually fully implemented at Avatar stage. Is that right? Did I hear you? Um, no, yeah, that, it wasn't fully implemented in Avatar. Um, that, by that point, we were using a dipole model. Uh, we were using it on Tintin. Um, since then, there has been sort of further improvements to it, and on Planet of the Apes as well. Rise of the Apes, sorry. And um, uh, one improvement that we did have for this model, and this was specifically done for the engineer, because the engineer is you know, a much bigger character, and he's got this very thick application of um, silicon on top of his skin on top of the actor. So um, what this meant was instead of the, you know, the, the sort of the average, the mean sort of uh, light transport of being, you know, around a centimeter as it would be in, you know, in human skin, you know, um, we've got a sample of, of the silicon that, that was used and you, know, you shine a laser into it and it just scatters for, you know, six, seven, eight centimeters, a huge distance. Now, if we just um, dial down the amount of translucency, Sorry, dial up the amount of translucency, for, you know, to the point where we get that kind of uh, transmission. What happens is a lot of our large features, you know, literally, um, you know, to the width of his fingers or the bridge of his nose or the the brows, the lips. A lot of the, you know, light just goes straight through them, and they they tend to look very soapy, very waxy. Um, so one of the extensions that we put into the PQ model for the film was to add. Uh, the concept of internal blockers to you know make sure that we could put you know um, bone you know use actually the the skeleton models that we had for our for our muscle rigs and our tissue rigs um, to be able to block the light transport to be able to keep um, the translucency distance far but not let light bleed through you know solid solid internal structures. 
I imagine that, again, like the continuum in terms of surface depth, there's a continuum of uh, the different ways that fat, muscle and bone would react and that they would obviously build on one another as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's, those are all areas of research that we're really keen on doing. I mean, how at the moment, you know, in terms of, and th- th- this actually um, was something that came up in terms of our, our vein effects. You know, we, we to actually, you know, create a lot of the natural motion of the veins, um, you know, we, we filmed elements, as I was saying earlier, where we, we, we got slabs of silicon and carved vein patterns into them and pumped through um, oils and inks and um, all these, uh, you know, with a kind of a heartbeat motion through the, uh, through the silicon. We backlit it and filmed it. And we used that as a driving element for a lot of the, the effects that we had. And one of the things we were noticing was, obviously, you know, a vein that's under the surface obviously has a very different characteristic than one that's sort of bulging on top of the surface. And how do you deal with um, different uh, depths of these different uh, materials, if you like? How do you deal with, um, you know, a vein that's two centimeters below the surface as opposed to one in terms of the, the you know, the, the way that the subsurface work? And, you know, these are all interesting areas of research. And, we, you know, we have... Um, uh, things to uh, add to the TQD model to be able to do things like tattoos or um, you know uh, other other objects under the skin that maybe have different um, different translucencies. So you could model um, layers of of fat and uh, viscera and blood and um, you know the fascia model under the dermis. Um, but uh, you know th- th- these are things that are, are hopefully going to come in the future. Um, what what is interesting is even if you have a technical model to be able to render these things, is how do you describe them? How do you you know do you actually get a you know a, a, a volumetric representation of all your characters just for the rendering? And you know how do you achieve that? Do you you know peel back people's skin until you see all these different layers and what depth they are and how they vary over the surface of a, of a you know a character? So that was obviously a computational hit when we went from a photon model to a twin light source or dipole kind of approximation and is there a performance hit in terms of the complexity that you're going to now is this really hitting your render times or is it still a fairly contained the, the tqd model um usually did a fantastic job of optimizing it and it's about um um without having numbers in front of me um you know in in reality you don't you don't notice it um it's about a 1.5 hit i think of what we had before so it's um, it's negligible in the scheme of things. For the detail it gives you, it's uh, well worth it. Yeah, I know it's it's fascinating. And the path I presume was into RenderMan. Yes, yes, uh, everything was rendered in PRMan. Right. So um, I did want to hit on one, I guess, slightly less. Um, uh, well, you know, it involves one of the engineers, but the more iconic scenes, less, I guess, technically um, uh, challenging, perhaps, is the. The pilot's chair, which is something that we've yeah. known about from from previous films, um, this is kind of hallowed ground of sci-fi. But it must have been kind of fun to tackle that problem. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was I was just thrilled to know Ridley was returning to the alien world to to, to make another film there. You know, as a, as a fan, let alone to be able to work on it, and then to sort of find out that we bid it on and been awarded uh, the pilot's chair sequence is just was just incredible. And, um, you know, you found yourself in dailies, you know, taking a step back and thinking, well, you know, we're designing the way that the elephantine suit, you know, encloses the engineer when he sits into the chair. 
and you know how does the chair articulate they had a they had a chair on set that could revolve around one axis but the barrel of it uh couldn't move up and down and so you know we we had to design how how that would move um you know now, that, the room that, that you shot that in was a was not a full height set was it or were you involved no, in the well, set extensions at the back as well or just the chair yeah um for the for that room i think we did some of them uh we did a lot of the set extensions for the ampule chambers um, the both the massive storage chamber and the ample chamber, which were, right. were actually the same set. The, the, these sets were enormous and they were massive. They they filled the full height of the bond stage in Pinewood, and they were, you know, walking around them. They just they felt cathedral-like. All the sets were, you know, just incredibly well built, incredibly well designed. Um, you know, it's a real thrill to be able to to walk around them. And but yeah, we had to extend the uh, the this uh, you know quite a lot of the sets to get the the ceilings the ceilings on and extend the, the corridors. Because I think working uh, against you is that the engineers are oversized. So just to have what would be a sort of a normal human-sized chair, for want of a better term, is um, that set already has to be bigger because everything's scaled up by the relative height of the, of the engineers. Yeah, absolutely. Everything was, um, was built for, uh, for a seven-foot engineer, um, although he's sort of... We seem to vary between nine-foot and seven-foot at okay. various points in the production. Um, yeah, and um, and so how was that pulled off? Like, how did you just take what was there in the photography, remove it, and replace it with a digital master, or were you trying to manipulate the footage of the chair, given that it didn't have the full degrees of freedom? Oh, we we we, we fully replaced it um, for, for those shots. I mean, they they removed it for those shots, so we had something to replace. Right. Um, so it, so it wasn't like we needed to to paint them out. I mean, what what was interesting about all the, the set extensions um, in those rooms and the chair was they had this. Uh, they had this quite interesting reflective quality. Everything was covered in this very fine graphite powder um, that uh, we, we needed to write a custom shader for just to make, get the, the sets to look right and the pilot's chair to look right. And there was also a little bit of getting the, the biomechanicalness of it to work to, to make, make sure that all the CG didn't look perfect. We needed to slightly warp our models and make them just a little bit more imperfect than we normally would to help them sit in the um you know the the set and give them that that uh that feeling that they were you know partially partially organic so there's a there's a great example of that when the pilot's chair is encasing the pilot with effectively the rib cage section of the mm. um so that was a fully digital shot or was there an actor at that point what talk walk me through that sort of close up oh, that that shot um that was Ian White the actor in his full prosthetic um, he was digitally augmented a little bit and replaced around his face, um, but um, that 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 was a real pilot's chair. But it was intercut with a fully digital one. Um, that particular shot was was a real chair with the engineer in, and they shot it twice. They shot it with um, a uh, in white in his uh, in his um, standard silicon suit, and then once more with a practical elephantine suit. And uh, that we that we used as reference, and we just worked on the uh, the standard plate, and uh, built the elephantine armor around him and animated it into place. And here you would have had to have had really good uh, camera tracking to sort of match all this stuff in. But I guess it was a much easier set to track because it's a fairly detailed set. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. So there was there was no real problem with with tracking these sets. We had other sequences where there's a lot of, um, especially the, the trilobite engineer fight and the Deacon sequence, where everything's under banks of strobe lights. The lighting is constantly changing every frame. 
and um, just for the sheer continuity of slates, it actually made all the tracking very hard. I can imagine. And because we had um, we had to make the uh, match moves of the engineer um, just absolutely spot on because of the trial bytes interacting with them means wrapping tentacles around. So we used a lot of reference cameras and made sure that all our match moves matched in in all of our reference cameras. Tell me, as a rule of thumb, is the stereo, the fact that it's shot stereo, is that making the tracking easier or harder? Obviously, you've got two cameras right away with a with a fairly known offset. Um, is that Yeah, I mean, in theory, in theory, I mean, having a stereo information, if you were just having a mono output, it would be easier. But uh, stereo is less forgiving for, for uh, tracks that don't quite work. Um, you need to make sure that the depth is always correct rather than being able to sort of warp in 2D afterwards. You've got that third dimension to um, to account for. And it, it shows straight away when it's not working correctly. Yeah, gone are the days of if it looks good, it is good. It has to exactly. look good on a frame and stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you, I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that, that you're discussing anything explicitly, but if you were to do another project like this, uh, building as we've seen on previous projects what do you think moving forward is uh the sort of the lessons from from prometheus for weta um i think uh, i think one of the big things uh for us was um utilizing and building our own practical elements of filming and using as as driving elements um to to rcg i mean not necessarily directly using them as comp elements um but for the engineer's destruction you know that the difference between trying to animate moving uh, veins through animating textures and drawing them on. It's actually quite difficult to get a very sort of uh, natural motion. And um, by, by building, um, building models and filming them, um, um, for example, for all the cracks on the, the engineer, we, we took lots of sort of uh, different uh, formulations of clay and solvents and things and dried them under heat lamps while filming them to get some of the cracks. And it's not something that we were using directly, but something that we would then process, turn into um, into our shaders to be able to affect the textures and the roughness and the subsurface depth to make the skin go leathery and hard and crack. But also, you know, to be able to, you know, in time delays and things, to be able to um, get into the deformers and the atrophying of, of the engineer. Um, so everything was sort of driven off the same sort of natural motion. You know, and, and things like, you know, even sort of one-off shots like, you know, the shot where where David has a, a, a droplet of uh, the, the blood of the engineer in the middle of the film. You know, he holds it up and looks at it, and there's a bit of a shimmer to that. And, you know, that, that was... a uh, that was an element that we filmed, um, then then mapped to the sphere and, and composited the hell out. But it gave gave a it gave us a an instantly a very naturalistic motion, uh, much quicker than say trying to write a procedural shader to do that. Hmm. Well, look, it's been fascinating talking to you. As again, uh, thanks so much for for doing that, and congratulations no, on the film because it really is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's really it it uh, it moved yeah, me in a way I haven't. <laughs> Um, I guess you guys get anaesthetized a little bit watching sequences over and over again, but you've got to know that was some pretty scary shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we did have a lot of dailies where we'd be watching, especially the MedPod sequence, where we'd be watching some pretty pretty disturbing operation footage to you know get the reference for for the uh, for for the MedPod sequence, and yeah, you become immune to it fairly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I, as a slight aside, I had a friend who actually got to film reference of a eyeball surgery. Um, the idea being that they wanted the uh, reference footage and the camera is on the eyeball and it just pans off. And the reason it panned off is he'd passed out, fell on the floor and the camera just slowly <laughs> panned off as it was on a, uh, on a fluid head. Um, yeah, some of this stuff is, uh, is a little... Uh, uh, but anyway, you guys did a great job translating. The, and I say the the inability that we can to pick between the live action and the uh, and the compositing is just totally down to how well you guys have managed to uh, pull that off. So congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it's a fantastic, world class team here at Wetter. I'm really proud to proud of all the people who worked on it. Thanks again for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, thanks to Martin Hill for taking time to speak with us. Are you an FX Insider? FX Insider is our special membership program that gives members access to special, more in-depth, and members-only content. Details are at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition to this, we do two other regular audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects in current releases as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. And if you enjoyed this, we'd also recommend our high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these, along with in-depth articles, news, and more, at fxguide.com. Also, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, check out our sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training, and it's even more affordable now with a two-class package. FX Guide was created by Mike Seymour, John Montgomery, and myself, Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.